0: Tomorrow, I graduate, and now I begin. How do I quantify these last four years? We can say that they were 36 months, 156.5 weeks, 1,095 days, 26,280 hours, 1,578,000 minutes, 94 million seconds that made up our time here. Did I make most of all of it? All those 94 million seconds spent on this hill in Ohio? Probably not. But I made it mine. I fell in love once and tried three other times. I made friends. I lost friends. People came in and out of my life. I grew close with some and grew distant with others. I developed an understanding for what it feels like for my heart to grow big and warm and unstoppable and what it feels like for it to get punched and stabbed and bruised I understood what it felt like for my heart to feel that dull, numb pain. I could tell when my heart might grow or shrink. I could feel it coming on. I became practiced. Yet, whether hurtful or infatuating, those feelings always surprised me. And despite pain, there was also joy. And I feel proud that I have learned them. For all the times I cried, I must have laughed twice as many times. At least that's what I tell myself. I spent days in class, walking, 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 seeing the people I cared about, but also days in bed. I spent nights, wonderful nights, in the library more often than not with friends, complaining and sharing in what we claimed was misery, but what I think we all secretly enjoyed and just didn't want to admit it. There was far too much giggling to truly claim otherwise. I felt anxiety when greeting acquaintances on Middle Path. that kid I'd met at a party and, but didn't know if they remembered it, but so hoped they had. Those late-night conversations and best friends, alcoholically stimulated and procured, but nevertheless feeling close, intimate, real. I learned about a myriad of wonderful things and painful things. I grew joyful. I grew cynical. It ebbs and flows. I grew up. I felt anxiety in creeping small ways, ways that I diminish and not want to account for much. Anxiety does not have to be crippling. It lurks and smirks and hides in distant grayish places and mostly comes out when it is most harmful, perhaps especially to my sleep. And sometimes it stays, sometimes it goes. Someday I will know what it really is, my lurking, smirking, and oh-so-inconsistent companion. And maybe when I'm old and a little wiser, I'll know why he stayed. I think a lot about joy these days, where my joy comes from. In those 94 million seconds, somewhere along the way, I learned that sometimes my joy is out of my hands. This surprised me. I'd always thought of myself as so sure, so in control of what made me happy, what sustained my joy. I always say to myself, your happiness is in the palm of your hand. Something a Buddhist monk said to me once. But I learned that the joy I felt in a moment could be taken away because someone didn't feel the same way or because things had changed. I am learning to say, screw that, to make my joy remain mine, that I define my joy. I am learning. I am learning. I am learning. You may hear me say that a gazillion times over the course of my life. I hope I never stop saying it. It was something my mom would always say when I was overcritical, and I'd always scoff at it. But it is wise beyond those words. For everything I've done wrong, the mistakes I've made, and the awareness I've gained, all I can do is say to myself, you might be hurting now. Maybe you're embarrassed. But all you can do is take this and understand that you've learned from it. And I've done things right, too. I've learned a few things that do make me happy, what I do have control over. There's something to be said for a good friend and a good beer. For stars and the sound of frogs when I'm walking home from the library at 2 a.m. For thunderstorms that wake me up to listen. For bike rides on the gap trail. For fresh flowers, for sarcasm. For goofiness, for gift-giving, for letters, for poetry, for vulnerability, for singing. I learned that singing was necessary, that singing was not just about joy, but it brought size and release and made everything that is the big and the dark and the chaos okay. On those days spent in bed, I'd kick myself knowing that I probably could have gotten through the day had I just gone to choir rehearsal, that if I'd stood on my own two feet and sang music with the warmest people, that I'd be all right. And though part of me hates to say it, I've learned that structure is powerful, is needed. While indeed the way in which we are ranked in society marks a type of conformity, one that I would like to challenge, I nevertheless enjoy high expectations. It rewards the idea of giving my all to something, and it allows that idea to seep beyond my work into my relationships and my passions. But I think the most important thing I learned in the classroom at Kenyon was not only how to articulate my beliefs, but also how to disagree with people I respected and to still walk out of a room as peers, colleagues, and friends. Studying religion has taught me this, how to be open and admire the convictions of people with differing convictions of my own. To hear a person talk about what they love is a truly gorgeous thing, and I've especially found this when I ask people to tell me about their religious life. To just ask someone about their congregation, their pastor, their denomination, how they've found their church is like hearing the account of something like the Odyssey or the Hobbit. I don't mean to over-romanticize it. We all have journeys. Religious ones, however, often bring magic to people's lives. And who doesn't want to hear about miracles? Yet, I came into Kenyon College under the naive impression that I was equal to all my peers. That as an American woman, I was no victim of sexism. Not really, anyway. We were civilized, modern. We didn't have honor killings or genital mutilation. Yet, I now understand that being woman reduces me in the most hegemonic of ways. In my English seminar this past semester on American fear, I would often write questions to myself in the margin of my notebook. Where is my power? Are women in constant liminal states? Will women always be victims? Is female solidarity possible? How do I have power? What is my power? Where is my power? These were all personal questions. Throughout the course, we explored tropes of women in modern-day American society, the subtle aggressions women are conditioned to participate in against one another. How we compete for men, how we compare ourselves to one another, how once we become romantically involved with a man, we feel a certain possession over him, how we believe we are entitled to a prince charming of sorts, a higher standard, how we are conditioned to be both perfect and effortless, complex, yet uncomplicated. There is nothing I hate more than men calling me a chill girl, because the second I care about something, I'm no longer chill. It corners me, it sedates me, it reduces me to a wikiHow article called How to Be Chill. I'm not kidding, this exists. All these tropes are perpetuated in TV, film, books, music, all ingrained and naturalized from essentially birth. These are the ideas that linger in my passing thoughts and my dreams that never cease to simultaneously trouble, prod, and illuminate me. Of course, I'm speaking about this heteronormatively, but that's changed too since coming to Kenyon. While I identify as straight, I now understand that that is an oversimplification. If anything, I'd identify as not straight, like not straight enough to be completely straight, yet not queer enough to call myself queer. And maybe I'm just not comfortable enough identifying as queer yet, because everyone is queer, really, at least to some extent, and I've certainly learned that. But above all, I am a woman. And in recent times, from studying abroad in developing countries to what I've learned in the classroom, but then also experiencing misogyny in the U.S. on a daily basis, I've grown frustrated, angry, and determined. So what is my power? Where does it reside? I think I'm still finding it. I have it. I just haven't quite mastered it yet. With that anger and determination, some days I feel helpless, like the odds are stacked against me. But I keep some things with me. My English professor told us something this semester. Some of you listening have probably heard me talk about this before. She told us that she keeps a figurine of the evil queen from Snow White on her desk. She said she does this as a reminder that if she had that much power, there is no freaking way she would care, even consider, if she were prettier than some girl. You learn to forgive yourself, and you learn to love yourself. It took me a long time to feel enough. Doubts still loom, big doubts. But I understand now that insecurity and uncertainty are things to be embraced. How humbling is it to be so young and to be incomplete? How hopeful and exciting and promising that is. And as I think about crossing that stage tomorrow, I doubt myself. I doubt my intellect, my beauty, my heart. For a great many things I don't think I'm deserving. And yet all I can do is try to live the best life I can and try to do it right. I will miss the people, my dear, dear friends, the conversations. I will miss this sweet Ohio air. I will miss the frogs. But I am full. I am joyful. I am scared. I am learning. I am learning. I am learning. And that is what made each of those 94 million seconds worth it. Tomorrow, I graduate. I end. I die. I've heard at various alumni events, see you on the other side, literally like we're dying. I hope that once I cross that stage, I will still be living, breathing, maybe gasping, but still living. I guess we'll just have to wait and see.